This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. One of the challenges rare disease advocates face in advancing research and treatments is finding patients needed to understand the natural history of a disease and participate in clinical trials. That's true for cavernous angioma, a formation of abnormal blood vessels in the brain and spinal cord with leaky walls that can cause seizures, stroke symptoms, hemorrhages, and headaches. The Angioma Alliance, though, has hit on an unusual strategy to find patients with the condition to build its registry as clinical trials for potential treatments get underway. We spoke to Connie Lee, president and CEO of the Angioma Alliance, about the condition, the start of the first clinical trial for a potential treatment, and why the history of a family who came to New Mexico in 1600 is helping identify patients with a condition today. Connie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to talk about Cavernous angioma, the the start of the first clinical trial of a therapy to treat the condition, and what you're doing to help identify patients who might enroll in this and and other trials. Let's start with the condition itself, though. What is cavernous angioma, and what's the prognosis for someone who has the condition? Yeah, so cavernous angioma is a relatively rare illness that affects people um, mostly in the brain and spinal cord. Um, It's an illness that causes abnormal blood vessels to form in the capillaries of the brain. And when they form, they look sort of like mulberries or raspberries. Um, They can hemorrhage and uh, they can cause strokes. They can cause seizures, um, all, all kinds of deficits. Um, And the the prognosis for the illness is very variable. Some people never have a symptom. There are a lot of folks, 1 in 500 people have one of these in their brain, and the vast majority of them will never know. Um, They won't have a symptom. But for those that have hemorrhage or whose lesions have gotten so large um, that they're, you know, starting to push against brain tissue, there, there are symptoms, and they can vary from, just having um, uh, mild neurological deficits to being severely impaired um, with some of our folks that have had brainstem hemorrhages. Those are, are incredibly debilitating. Um, or they can even take lives. And we've lost uh, you know, a good number of members over the years that I've been doing this. How is the condition treated today? The only treatment that's uh, of any use really is brain surgery or spinal cord surgery. And, you know, as, as you can imagine, that's not something that someone would go into lightly. Um, 
it is also not appropriate for many people because in many cases the brain surgery would cause more deficits or be riskier than the lesion itself. So for most people who have this, even if they're symptomatic, just have to wait and see and hope that they don't have another hemorrhage or that they don't begin having seizures as a result. It's a, um, half the problem with the illness is the symptoms it causes, but the second half is the anxiety that it creates, never knowing if this is the day that you're going to wake up and have a brain hemorrhage. How well understood is this condition among doctors? How, how easily do they recognize a patient with a condition if they see one? So the, the only way to diagnose the illness definitively is with an MRI. So once a patient gets to a symptom point where they actually get to an MRI, um, they typically are diagnosed. It's not that difficult to tell a cavernous angioma from another, you know, other types of brain lesions that people have. Apparently, I'm, I'm not a radiologist, so I don't know this firsthand, but that's what I understand. Um, it's getting to the MRI that frequently takes a long time. And we've had people who have presented with symptoms year after year after year and been told that they were psychiatric in origin or been misdiagnosed with other illnesses that look similar. Like um, in the old days, it was MS, multiple sclerosis, looks very similar to our illness. Um, now, for the most part, though, I must say that if someone gets to the point of seeing a neurologist and the neurologist orders an MRI, we get, we get pretty good diagnosis. I know this condition has several different names. Does that add to the confusion among patients and doctors? It does. Um, so the, we call it cavernous angioma because we feel like, and we meaning Angioma Alliance and some of the, the primary uh, clinical people that are associated with us because we feel it's most accurate and most descriptive. Angio is blood vessel. Oma is tumor of a blood vessel. Cavernous is what they look like. But a while ago, um, a long time ago, it used to be called a cavernoma, which has more of an implication of a cancer. Um, so the doctors moved away from calling it a cavernoma at that time, but it, that word is still used in Europe, and it still is used here sometimes as well. And then there's even a third name, cavernous malformation. Um, there was a point in time where the physicians were all trying to get uh, more of a sense of order to uh, the vascular things that can go wrong in a, in a person's body, and so they were trying to uh, give them similar sounding names so that we would understand how they related to each other. And cavernous malformation came about at the same time as venous malformation and arterial venous malformation. There's just a bunch of malformations that were out there. And un unfortunately or not, that's the word that's used most often in the medical literature now. So we do have three different names. And w what that leads to is Folks have difficulty finding us. If their doctor told them they have a cavernoma, they're not necessarily looking for Angioma Alliance. Um, you know, we, we do our best to be found by search engines of all kinds, but sometimes that doesn't work for us. Or they wind up in Facebook groups that are called Cavernoma Support Group rather than the primary Angioma Alliance group where we're all, all um, assembled and talking to each other. There's a clinical trial that'll be investigating 
atorvastatin as a potential treatment for angioma. This is a, a drug that people will likely know by the brand name Lipitor. Why is it thought this might benefit patients? Well, it, it's not because it's going to lower their cholesterol. That's, <laughs> that is the one thing that we all know that Lipitor does, but actually is completely irrelevant to our condition. Um, the, the statins have a bunch of different functions, um, and uh, they do a bunch of different things. And, and uh, they're considered in many ways dirty drugs in that way because they do affect multiple body systems. And at high enough doses, statins impact cavernous angiomas. Um, I, I don't want to go into too much technical detail, but um, there is a molecular signaling pathway that once you get over 80 milligrams a day of um, atorvastatin, it is uh, 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 it, it's affected by the atorvastatin such that what we're hoping to find is that the risk of having a second hemorrhage goes down, that the, the blood vessels in the cavernous angioma, which are very thin and leaky and not normal, will actually firm up and um, reduce the risk of having a second hemorrhage or having more leakiness than, than what we see right now. Your organization, the Angioma Alliance, is redoubling its efforts to get patients into its registry. Why is this important now? So when we're trying drugs for our illness, um, we're not necessarily able to use every person that's out there. And in fact, the number of people that are being, uh, that are uh, eligible for enrollment in our current clinical drug trial of atorvastatin is very small. It, it truly are the needles in our haystack. Um, what they're looking for for this trial are people who have had a brain hemorrhage in the last year. Well, we know a lot, a lot of people with cavernous angiomas, but we only know a few people whose disease has been active just this year. And the reason that they want people who have had hemorrhage just in the last year is because we know those are the people who are most likely to have a second hemorrhage in the next two to three years. Once you go past three to five years of your hemorrhage, your odds of having a second hemorrhage go way down, which is good. It's great for those patients, but for research purposes, it's not so great. It's hard for us to know if a medication is having an effect if a disease has gone into remission. If you're looking at a disease that's in remission and you're giving a drug and nothing happens, is it because the drug had an impact or is it because the disease was in remission and it wasn't going to be active anyway? So what we need to do at this point with our patient registry is really increase the recruitment so that that pool of people who have had a hemorrhage in the last year or even moving forward, the people who have a hemorrhage next year and become eligible so that they can be recruited into the clinical trial if that's what they want to be part of or into the other clinical research that's beginning to happen now for for this illness. Um, We're trying really hard to grow our patient registry from its current 1,500 people to 2,500 people by the end of the year. And if we can go even higher than that, it will definitely be beneficial for all the research that's trying to enroll right now. In the past, it's been challenging to find patients to enroll in the registry. Why is that? Um, Well, it's a combination of all the things. One is, you know, we, we have been working on getting increased awareness of the illness, but it's still not a well-known disease by any measure. Um, so 
folks need to find Angioma Alliance first. They need to get to a diagnosis. They need to find us. And then they need to be willing to put in the 20 minutes that it takes to fill out a form, um, you know, the, the survey on our, our website. And as, as little as that sounds like, it's still, I think, very difficult for most of us to carve out 20 minutes to do something that's outside of our normal routine. And it's not fun. You know, it's, it, we try to, you know, we, I can't say it's, it's useful and it's helpful, but it's, it still is completing a survey online, and it won't tell you at the end who your perfect celebrity boyfriend is. It's just going to help with, with research. Um, so that's been some of the challenge. And then the other part is it would be helpful for us, for physicians, to refer folks to our registry. And that hasn't been happening yet, and that's part of the outreach we're going to be doing this year is making sure that physicians who treat our patients are aware of the, that the registry is there and also aware of how important it is to make sure that their patients become part of it. Cavernous angioma is a genetic disease, and you've been able to find a New Mexico founding family, the, the Baca family, that carries the condition. You've hit upon a, a really, I think, brilliant strategy for identifying patients, and I'm wondering if you could explain the Baca family historical project. Sure. Um, let, let me back up a sec, though, but because this illness, um, it, and explain a little bit about the genetics of the illness. About 75% of people that have the illness do not have a hereditary form. They have one cavernous angioma, and that's it. They will not pass it on to their children. There are 25% of people with the illness who do have a genetic form, and it is an autosomal dominant illness where every child of a person who's affected has a 50-50 chance of inheriting the illness too. Now there are three different genes that can lead to the exact same illness. One of them is called CCM1. Um, in New Mexico, there is a very specific mutation of the CCM1 gene that has been passed down through the generations from the mid-1600s. So when you think about how many progeny there are of a couple who was around in the 1600s, we're talking tens of thousands of people. Um, and many, many, many of these families have stayed in New Mexico. We do know people with what's known as the common Hispanic mutation everywhere um, in the U.S. and, in fact, even in other countries, but really the concentration is in New Mexico and in the surrounding states and in Chihuahua, Mexico. What we are trying to do there is find the families that are affected, many of whom are still not even now diagnosed. Um, and we had been working for 10 years to find families, not having good response. And in part, it's because we were walking up to these families and saying, we think you might have a very serious illness. Why don't you come and find out about it? And, you know, most people would run away from that if they had no understanding of the diagnosis or um, no knowledge that their family was affected. So a couple of years ago, we uh, decided to try a different approach. And what we're doing now, now that we know who the founding couple are, is we're trying to connect the families, all of the families, not just those that are affected with the illness, but the families that are the descendants of this couple in basically a celebration of the heritage of, of the Baca family, uh, in a celebration of Hispanic heritage in New Mexico, um, and develop a, a supportive community before we even try to identify who's sick and who's not sick. 
Um, and so we do this by holding and advertising public conferences. We will go on radio and on t local TV and say, we're doing the Baca Family Historical Project. Please come learn about your, hist your family history. Come work on your family tree. We hold family tree workshops as part of these conferences. And then also find out that if you are a member of this family line, you are at higher risk for this specific illness, the uh, cavernous angioma caused by the common Hispanic mutation. And if you are interested, we will help you find out more about the illness. And if you think that you might want genetic testing, we can facilitate that as well. Part of what Angioma Alliance does nationally is offer free genetic testing to people who have multiple lesions. But in the, in the New Mexico area, we also offer free genetic testing to people who are at risk because of genealogy. Um, if you, if it looks like you're in the family line, um, and right now we have it down to specific grandchildren of Cristobal Baca too. So we're already five generations into um, the the founder, uh, the the first Baca that hit New Mexico, and we know exactly which one of those grandchildren had the illness in there for which family lines we're looking at there. Um, but if you're in one of those family lines, we can offer you genetic testing if you want to find out. And if you do find out that you're positive, then we will we'll also go ahead and test all of your other family members that want to know. And we don't release the results directly to the, the um, individuals being tested. We release the results to their physicians. And we serve as backup genetic counselors in, in some ways, but we also connect them to the University of New Mexico, where we have recognized the center of excellence. It's a multidisciplinary um, care for our patients along with a major research program. Um, so it's, it's our way of serving this community, and we have been really effective. And, um, and the, the effort so far, uh, just as an example, and this, this is just a small example of a much larger story, before we started in 2016, there were 30 people who went to the outpatient clinic at the University of New Mexico who were diagnosed with this illness. The, they went to the CCM clinic through the vascular neurology department. So it's 30 people. This past year, in 2018, there were more than 300 people. They see just as many cavernous angioma patients at the University of New Mexico as they see stroke patients right now in their vascular neurology department. It's that common. And um, they, that uh, increase is not just at the University of New Mexico. It's, it's reflected in a number of the other hospitals in the state as well. And the Department of Health has gotten involved. So the other part of what we're doing there is training the health providers on the community level. New Mexico has a program. Um, they're called Promotoras or Community Health Workers. Um, they're lay people who go into the communities and do health education. And so the Department of Health in New Mexico has sponsored us to train the community health workers. And we're also training public health workers who are uh, professional level care providers um, so that they understand who's at risk, what to look for, what the illness is, and uh, refer people appropriately. If all goes well. What's the timing of the clinical trial, and, and when might you know whether atorvastatin has value in treating patients with cavernous angioma? So 
individuals are going to be enrolled for two years, um, and the plan is to recruit for two years. So by the time the last patient is done in the trial, we're hoping that it will be all done within a three-year period. This is a phase two trial, so it's not the end-all, be-all. Um, there's only going to be, as I said, there, there will only be 80 patients enrolled. Um, what we hope is that we'll have a pretty good idea at that point whether or not atorvastatin is something that warrants a large trial. Um, now, we have to remember that when we're doing trials for repurposed drugs, the money is not coming from a drug company to run those trials. The money is coming from NIH, and therefore, it's much tighter. They're going to run smaller trials. The trials are going to need to take longer. It's just harder to get funding. So the phase three trial hopefully will start less than three years from now, um, and then we'll, you know, again, hopefully will not take that long um, for us to, to have the definitive yes or no answer. But what I expect is that in three years, we'll already know whether it's not an option, and we probably will have a good idea as to how effective it may be in helping our, paper, our patients. There's at least one other trial which is getting underway. This is recursion pharmaceutical study of Temple. What, what is Temple, and, and how important is your registry going to be in terms of identifying patients for these types of trials and, and future trials that will make an impact on the condition? So um, Tempol, I'm not sure that I can explain completely because I don't know that I understand it necessarily. It's a super oxide dismutase um, medication and uh, involves reactive oxygen species and lots of other words. But honestly, the bottom line is that Tempol is a drug that's expected, if it's working correctly, um, to do very much similar things to what we hope atorvastatin will do. Um, we're also hoping that it will do it with very, very few side effects. Um, so we're hoping it will reduce the risk of rehemorrhage. We're hoping that it may even stop the development of new lesions. In the genetic forms of this illness, people develop more lesions over time. We, it's not uncommon for our patients to have 100 or more of these lesions in their brains. Um, so. Temple, though, again, in order for the testing of the, of the drug to be efficient, needs to focus, will likely focus first on hemorrhage. Um, and again, this is the, a group that's, a, it's a very narrow subset of our pa patient population, so they're going to need us. And in fact, we've been talking with them about how to get international trials going, not just because they are a company, a for-profit company rather than a, a, a you know, little academic institution funded by NIH, they have a few more resources. So we, we can help them um, hopefully get established to a certain extent with our patient communities in, in other countries. Um, we have angioma alliances um, all over Europe. There are quite a number. We have one in South America, and we're beginning two in, in Asia. Um, so that in that way, we can also help with outreach for for-profit companies that have the capability to extend their drug trials outside of the United States. Connie Lee, President and CEO of the Angioma Alliance. Connie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 